It has been great to worship together this morning, and we'll continue that by taking our Bibles and turning to the book of Genesis. We are finally back. Genesis chapter 25. I was looking at my notes this week. It has been since the month of August that we have been in this book, so it's about time for us to get back into it and finish it together. And I have to say, as you're turning there to Genesis 25, uh, page 19, if you're using the Bible in the pew, that I love having the opportunity to serve in this corporate gathering in this way. It was nice to have a couple other guys uh, preaching for us the last couple weeks, and I really appreciate Mark stepping in last week as well. Um, But when it comes to this corporate gathering, this is my favorite thing to do. And so thank you for the honor of being able to teach the Word of God to you. And I appreciate your affection for His Word as well. It is clear that this church loves God's Word. And so with that, what we want to do now is go ahead and read our text. uh, Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34, and get a, a sense of the entire story before I explain it. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Here we are a few weeks into the new year, and it may be your aspiration, at least in this new year to come, to lose some weight. It's a common goal. Many are targeting it quite regularly. I see some patting their stomachs already. <laughs> the goal is that, that, that we are trying to like take a few pounds off, and we all know the science of this. You, you've got to burn more calories than you actually take in. 
That, that's the way it works. But the hard thing is to actually get into that kind of a deficit. And so for those of you who are struggling with this, I would actually make you aware of something that is unconventional in weight loss, but highly effective. Are you ready for it? The game of chess. Chess. I read an article on ESPN.com this week that actually explains that when someone is participating in a chess tournament, they can lose up to 6,000 calories per day. They say that the mental exhaustion of the strategizing and the trying to anticipate the other person's move actually puts the body under the same amount of duress as that of a marathon runner or a professional athlete. That's a lot of weight. They say that some grandmasters can lose six pounds in one week from doing nothing else but sitting, thinking, strategizing. It's pretty intense. Now, I have a confession to make. This will be an interesting insight into my life. I have never finished a game of chess in my life. But you know something? I feel like I'm playing it every day. Do you? Do you know what it is to sit and think and contemplate and strategize your, your next move? Do you ever have this conversation? If I do this, then this should happen. And if that works out, then this could come into play, thereby enabling me to get this or that. Fill in the blank with whatever you want to. It could be financial terms. It could be physical terms. It could be your education. It could be your vocation. It could be your ministry. But it seems like all of us are constantly like forced into this chess match in which we are strategizing every next move. And frankly, friends, it is downright exhausting. Some of us have a tendency to look back to prior moves played and think, why did I do it that way? And man, I should, I should have like, done it different. I should have chose this option instead of that option. And some of us are perpetually looking forward. We're looking ahead to try to figure out, I mean, like straining our necks to look around the bend to try to anticipate our next best move. And then some of us are just consumed with the present just to dig ourselves out of the current predicament that we find ourselves in, hopefully, so that we can have a better future in the day ahead. It's the way that we feel. We feel the pressure because we have a tendency to rely on our own rule over our own lives. But guess what, friends, church family? This book, as a whole, and Genesis in particular, was written to release that pressure of self-rule. God wrote this book so that His people would realize that He rules over their lives and not Him, and not them, excuse me. Lest you think I'm reading this into the book of Genesis, I, you need to understand how the thing functions. 
I mean, let's catch ourselves back up to, to where this goes. We know that Genesis is an entire narrative. It's a story. There's not that many laws like tucked within this book. It's just all one big story. Well, what does a story do? A, a, a story like catches you up into something and then you can subtly begin to learn how God operates and how he works. And this is what we know up to this point in Genesis. God created the world good. Mankind ruined it by his rebellion. And guess what? Guess how it's going to get fixed? The book of Genesis explains. It's going to get fixed by God intervening and working through certain individuals to bring about that salvation. Remember the story of Noah? How was anybody saved? Because God chose to work through Noah. Remember the, the months at which we studied the life of Abraham? What was the point of that? The whole point of the story of Abraham is that God made a promise to this one guy, and because he's fulfilled his promise to this one guy, there would be salvation for the nations one day to come. And now we turn the chapter and reach a new story, and guess what? Same theme, different person. It is God's working in the life of Isaac and his son Jacob, who will one day be known as Israel. You see it right in that first verse of your text. It says, uh, these are the generations of. You know that you're reaching a new spot in the book of Genesis when you see that. But here's something that's interesting that you may not know unless you've been studying the whole book with some intentionality. The beginning story of every new chapter sets the tone for everything to come. The beginning story of every new chapter, not the chapters in your Bible, but I'm talking about the these are the generations of, sets the tone for the things to come. Let me give you a quick example. Abraham. If you want to know, if you want to understand the life of Abraham, you cannot understand it apart from Genesis 12, 1 through 4, where he gets this call, and God makes this promise, and now Abraham, by faith, responds to this promise. It's kind of like the pilot episode of, a, of your favorite TV show. You could try to jump in on episode two or three, but if it's a well-crafted drama, you're missing some very important information if you didn't see the first episode. And in a similar way, we have a new season here. It's the first episode. It's going to focus on a different character. And if you want to understand everything with Isaac and his son Jacob, you need to get this first story. And the weird thing is this. Though it says these are the generations of Isaac, we don't get a major story about Isaac till the next chapter. It begins with his children because this is the pinnacle event that will show us how God operates, how he is bringing about his salvation, how history unfolds. I could say it this way, how his story unfolds. How does his story unfold in the life of Abraham? Through promise and faith. How does his story unfold in the life of Isaac and Jacob? Through sovereignty and trust. That's exactly what this story will be about. It, it falls into two parts. And for those of you who are taking notes, you'll find these two parts to be really easy to identify within the text. You've got the birth of Jacob and Esau. That's in verses 19 to 22. So the narrator wants to make you aware of the birth of Jacob and Esau. And then in the last part, he brings, about, uh, brings to your attention the behavior of Jacob and Esau. Verses 29 to 34, the birth of Jacob and Esau, the behavior of Jacob and Esau. But that's just what's happening. You need to be listening out for why it matters. 
And I think that you'll see first in the birth of Jacob and Esau why it matters. Because it is a graphic picture of the sovereign decree of Almighty God. Let's look at the text again. Notice how the story begins in verses 19 to 22. We read in those passages that God is at work through Abraham. He's still alive at this point. That The focus of his life has ended. But the narrator is backing up to show us his connection to Isaac. And he wants us to see that Abraham still had some influence in Isaac's life when these boys were being raised. And so Abraham fathered Isaac. We're reminded that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, Padanaram. That's where she was born, somewhere in northern Mesopotamia. The sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. That guy's name is going to matter in a few chapters, but not yet. But the deal is that he is connecting us to the previous promises of Abraham. Like, just think about the name Rebecca. Do you remember the last time we saw Rebecca? The last time we saw Rebecca was all the way back at the end of chapter 24, where she is leaving to go marry Isaac, and all of her family is wishing this. Uh, it's in verse 60 of chapter 24. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Remember that? There's this prayer that she was going to produce a mighty multitude. But notice the, the continuity with the way God worked in Abraham and the way that he works in Isaac. You see it there in your text. He marries her, and then in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. <laughs> she was barren. Here it is, we see these similarities already between Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. And you need to remember, friends, that anytime you see a word like barren in the text, it was of huge import and significance to the first century reader. I mean, excuse me, to the original readers. It's almost like uh, the word cancer in our own day. You just say that one word, and for those who have experienced it or been close to it, they know everything that that involves. Or you look to the first century and you see the word crucifixion. All it says in the New Testament is that Jesus was crucified. It didn't even need any explanation because it was such a heinous, horrific, memorable act that everyone knew what it entailed. And so also, when you see the word barren in an Old Testament text, it doesn't need explanation for the original readers because it was absolutely devastating. For us in our culture, barrenness is inconvenient, it is tragic, it is sad, but it is not life-ending. In that particular culture, it would be the end of your life. You would not die with honor without a child to care for you in your old age. There wasn't a government welfare system. There wasn't a community collective. You were considered to be cursed of God if you had to die in your old age alone. And there were no other resources for you. In fact, as a, as a wife, you would not be able to enter into your vocation. <laughs> uh, you would be ostracized and outcast in some ways. And then the husband would be shamed because he would have no one to carry on his name. And in an honor culture, that was a big deal. And so we see that she faces, and this couple, excuse me, together faces some of the same struggles of the earlier patriarchs, and yet they get through it the same way. This is a godly family. What does he do? Isaac prays. Isaac prays, and God eventually answers. The text will indicate later that 
The boys won't be born until Isaac is 60. So don't get the idea that all of a sudden Isaac prayed and then bam, everything was fixed. You've got about 20 years of praying going on here, but God does eventually answer the prayer. And so we see this faithful couple operating. Uh, they are indeed a family of faith under fire, but the obstacle's not over yet because now they have, they, she's conceived and yet there's another issue. Uh, you see it there in verse 22. The children struggled together within her. Now, let me pause here. The, the word struggled together in our English translation is, is pretty vanilla. If you look and see how this word is used in other places in the Old Testament, sometimes the word smashed together is used. I mean, think of it like a demolition derby. This isn't just, ooh, the baby kicked. This is a, a violent tussle within the womb to the degree that she is even wondering if the pregnancy is worth it. The effect of her statement is this. I mean, this, this, these children or this child that she wanted so bad, she doesn't know for sure yet what it will be. She says, if it is thus, if I feel this way, why is this happening to me? Why is this, what's the point of all this? It is something that has provoked her to seek God's help, and so she does. She, she went to inquire of the Lord, so she prays as well. And look at verse 23, here is where God is going to announce or explain her pain in light of his purpose. The oracle from God is this, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided, the one shall be stronger than the other, the other shall serve the younger. Now notice this, he's saying, I acknowledge your pain, but it is on purpose. I am doing something intentional in this. And now notice how God pronounces His sovereign decree amid her pain. What is it? He says, I decree that there will be two nations in your womb. So there's going to be some difference. It's not just going to be one. There's going to be two. And notice this. He's sovereign not only over their division, but He's also, excuse me, their difference, but their division. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. They're not even going to get along. They're going to be divided. Notice the next thing that God decrees. He says, the one shall be stronger than the other. What is this? It is God's sovereign rule over disparity or inequality. Notice he doesn't say that the boys are just going to be equal. He actually says that there will be one who will dominate over the other one. And then, just naturally, you know who is going to dominate because it says in the next part, that one will rule over the other. But listen to this, friends. The natural expectation in anyone's mind reading this passage is going to be, I mean, it's obvious, the older is going to rule over the younger. That's the natural expectation. Because in that culture, the older always ruled over the younger. In fact, the way Deuteronomy is going to spell it out is that the older is just more favored of God. I'll pat myself on the back for being the older in my own family. Some, not all of us are as lucky. But in God's eyes, it was just that the older enjoyed unique advantages. Now, I know in our American culture, that just reeks of inequality. And yet, that's the way God set it up. He even said in Deuteronomy 22 that the older would get twice the inheritance of the younger. So let me in, illustrate it this way. Abraham's a pretty rich guy. He passes on a lot of money to Isaac. Let's say that he's, his net worth is $3 million. All right, When he dies, that means that Isaac is going to get $2 million and Esau, excuse me, Esau is going to get two million, and uh, where am I? <laughs> Jacob, thank you, is going to get one million. 
That's, how would you feel about that? Like, if that's the way it was broken down for you. And yet, that's the way it was. But, listen to this. That's the way things naturally work. But listen to how they supernaturally work. Look at that last line. God decrees that the older will not dominate the younger, but the older shall serve the younger. Shall serve the younger. And everything to follow in the next ten chapters at least is going to show us how this thing will come to pass. The, The unexpected one will actually receive the blessing. He'll be the one that is favored of God. And this is something that he had decreed. Now, for those of you who are theologically aware, if you're um, if your hobby is like philosophy and epistemology, you like to think deeply about things, you could be looking at this text and saying, Justin, this is not decree. This is just uh, foretelling. God is predicting the future, right? I mean, if it just says that this will happen and that will happen, that just means that God knows what's going to happen at some point in the future, and he's just telling her like what he saw in the future. That's a great... Con- I, I, I agree that if... if this was all I had, I would think like, oh, wow, that's cool. God saw into the future what was going to happen. But the problem with that is that Paul, the apostle, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in interpreting this very text, doesn't say that it was just a matter of foresight, but he says that it was a matter of foreordination. It is, God here is not saying, I see what will happen. God is saying, I'm declaring what will happen. Uh, Phil read it for us in Romans chapter 9, and I won't read that entire passage to you, but he's talking about in Romans 9, the truth is that God chose some in the nation of Israel to be saved. He chose Israel, but he didn't choose all Israel. And that's why he points out that, for example, Isaac was chosen and not Ishmael. And then he specifically gets to this story in Romans 9 verse 10 and says, not only so, like with Isaac and Ishmael, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I have hated. That's a hard text, friends. But there's no getting around it. This isn't just a preview. God is positing what will actually happen. He declares that they will be different, that they will be divided, and that one will dominate over the other one. Just rest with the text. Now watch how it works itself out. Does God's decree come to pass? Absolutely. Notice how these differences come to play in normal time and space. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, look at this, notice this, there were twins in her womb, so there was two nations, just like he said. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. (laughs) Now that's interesting. You can just imagine this child being born red or reddish. You don't have any idea what this means, but something interesting happens as the story continues here. The narrator will keep bringing up the word red. Now, there is some intentionality to this because certain colors are associated with certain things, and it even transcends cultures. 
When you think of the word red, what do you typically think of? You think of anger, you think of danger. <laughs> I mean, like, red normally signals something with your own mind, unlike green, you know, which is pleasant. It means go. <laughs> green grass. Red is that which a bull charges at. Red is the color of the stop sign or the stoplight. Red is the color of the warning label. I mean, like in a similar way, he's going to say that this child came out with some reddish hue and it was the signal of something to come. Not only was he red, he was different from his brother in that he was red, but he was also hairy. Now, some people see in this an allusion to the epic of Gilgamesh, the little character Akindu, who was this hairy, wild man that, that actually, like, dominates the story. I think of, like, in our own culture, like a modern wolf man. If you see somebody that's all shaggy, <laughs> you're not thinking, like, oh, what a well-kept and civil individual. This is someone who's impetuous. This is someone who, who is, like, passionate. Uh, someone who thinks of the moment and not the long term. And so this child, even in his birth, it seems like God's already at work. He's, he's already like designed this kid differently than the other one. How does the other one come out? It doesn't give us any indication of his physical features. It just speaks of his actions. And listen, from the very first time he breaches the birth canal, you already see something interesting about him. What is it? It is that... When he came out, his hand, verse 26, was holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob just means heel grab. <laughs> he grabbed his heel, and so they named him Jacob. And then it just says that Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. So what's the significance of him grabbing his heel? Well, let me, let me just ask you this, friends. Uh, when do you ever grab anyone's heel? Now, I, I, I tried to think in my life at times that I've ever targeted someone's heel. They're very few, but guess what? Every time it was happening, I wanted the other person to fall. You don't grab a heel unless, one, you're beneath or someone else is ahead and you want to be ahead. One of the most despicable instances of this, I can say this because my basketball team, college basketball team, is stinking it up this year, so I can just throw off on their competitor. Uh, Duke basketball is not my favorite. And one of the most hated players in all of Duke basketball is none other than a young man named Grayson Allen. And you know why people hate Grayson Allen so much? Well, one, because he's good. But secondly, this kid, three times in one season got a technical foul for tripping another player. Like he was constantly like just putting his foot out and trying, and, and people now even debate who's hated more, this guy or Christian Leitner. And if you remember anything about 90s Duke basketball, this is a serious charge. What we've got here is a little Grayson Allen. He's going to get a hold of this message and I'm going to get sued. But look, the truth is, like you think, this is somebody who is not accepting their rightful place. Someone else beat him to the punch. Esau got out first, and yet here he is clamoring at his heels already. So we know something about Jacob. We know something about Esau. And how do we know that this would happen? God decreed that it would happen. He decreed that these boys would be different. And one of them is violent, impetuous, wrapped up in the moment. The other is strategic, thinking about the future, trying to get ahead. And let's see how it plays out. They grow up, and according to the verse, uh, verse 27, it says, when the boys grew up, Esau 
was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Do you see the division starting to take place? Now, we, we already made clear that God sovereignly ordained some differences. Well, the differences are there. We see them right at the womb. But now we're going to see, like, the division. And, and there's going to be a division because these guys have different interests. God made them with, with different inclinations, different tendencies. And what do we know of Esau? Well, we know that he was, I mean, literally in the Hebrew text, the man of the field. <laughs> Uh, he is someone that reminds me of, of many of you. you. You value being outdoors. You don't want to be confined to an office or to a space or to the house. You just want to get out in the open. And it says that he was a skillful hunter. I mean, he was somebody that, that you would applaud and admire as like a man's man in some ways. Magazine's subscription for him, Field and Stream. His credit card of choice, Cabela's. Like, he's that kind of a guy. His brother, on the other hand, the Bible says of him that he is, uh, it says he's quiet. The word in, in Hebrew just means complete, at rest. Maybe a, a good translation was he was civil. He was civilized. Uh, it says he was at home in the tent. He, he more liked things at home than being out in the open space. He didn't feel this like itching sense of adventure. He, he liked his own space. If I were to contrast him in modern day terms, he'd probably like subscribe to some type of home improvement magazine. He would have a Lowe's credit card. You know, he wants to make his space right. He's civil. <laughs> if I were to use uh, some, uh, one more secular analogy, I think this may help. You've got the Rambo version of a man, you know, like out in the wild. And you've got the James Bond version of a man, civil and refined. This isn't masculine versus effeminate. It's just their respective spheres of interest. And what this does, though, is these natural interests within them will put them on different trajectories that their parents themselves, listen to this, parents, that their parents themselves will exacerbate through their own affection and love. Dangerous. This passage is not about parenting, so I can't preach it as such. But you could see an interesting picture here. Because the parents are going to help fuel the division between the two of them. Because what happens with the one? Well, it says that uh, Isaac, in particular, greatly appreciates the taste of wild food. And guess what? Since Esau's a hunter, and he likes wild food as well, they get together and love. <laughs> he experiences his father's unique love on the basis of nothing more than his food preferences. And it doesn't even say anything about Jacob. It just says that maybe she felt sorry for her. Maybe she knew the promise. Maybe she liked the fact that he worked around the house. We don't know. But the text just says that she loved Jacob. Now, what do we have? We have differences. So we have difference. We're setting it up for a division. And the natural question would be, apart from that oracle in the middle of the passage is, man, why are they so different? What's the problem? Why, why is things headed this way? You know why they're headed this way. Because God said they were going to head this way. What is the point of this opening uh, snapshot in this life of Jacob and Esau and Isaac? It is that God sovereignly decrees that differences and divisions and even the dominion of one over the other. How does His story unfold? It unfolds, friends, if you're writing it down, by His sovereign decree. The decree of God. 
God works in history by deciding what happens in history. That's what the birth of Jacob and Esau tell us. That's what Paul will affirm for us in Romans 9. But the passage not only speaks to the birth of Jacob and Esau. There's a second part. And in that second part, we'll see the behavior of Jacob and Esau. The birth is something that they couldn't control. The behavior is something within their realm. There is the behavior of Jacob and Esau. And when we look at this carefully, we're going to see another way that God unfolds His story. It's not just by the decree of God, but it's also by the decisions of man. The decisions of man. You say, Justin, it's rather convenient that you could come up with some parallel idea like that. Uh, Friends, I want you to know that I am not reading this into the text. You're going to notice when we read through these verses in just a moment that though the first half of the passage mentions God four times and talks about His sovereign intervention and working, the last half of the text will mention God a rousing zero times. There will be no mention of God's intervention. It will only show us the human decisions and desires of mankind. You ready to see it? Look in the text. We'll start off by just reading verses 19, uh, excuse me, 29, starting at verse 29. We have this one example of how this, these sovereign differences unfolded. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Now, pause here. Uh, What we have at this moment is Jacob setting a trap. Jacob setting a trap. God is not actively at work here. We don't see any mention of God. What we do see is Jacob. And what we do see is Esau. And it seems to be a normal situation. Like, all right, you've got his brother and he went out on a hunt or he was out in the field And the Bible rightfully says in the text that he's exhausted. And you know how it is when you're exhausted. When you're exhausted, you get hungry, you lose a little bit of self-control. For some of us, we lose a lot of self-control. We just make dumb dieting decisions. We're not very restrained. So physically, he's been affected. It says that he's exhausted. But guess what? His brother sees an opportunity to capitalize on this. Now again, his brother is more forward-thinking. He's trickier. And so he sees in this an opportunity to get something that he really, really wanted. And what was that? Well, the text says it was a birthright. He says, look, I know you're exhausted, and I will give you this red stuff, this red stew that I'm making. Notice that word red again. If you'll just sell me your birthright. Now, you need to understand what a birthright is, because it's going to be confusing later on where they're going to talk about a blessing as well. And I was always confused about this in Sunday school when I was a kid. What was the difference between losing the birthright and losing the blessing? It seems that the birthright was the financial benefit of being the oldest child. The blessing was the honorary benefit. And you say, I don't give a rip about the honor as long as I get the money. Well, that's because you're an American. But people in Eastern cultures would care more about the honor than the money. But we'll get to the honor another day. Right now, this is the two million versus the one million. We've got a lot on the line here. And so Jacob says, yeah, I'll give you this red stew uh, if you'll sell me your birthright. He is setting a trap. Notice that, that human intentionality. I mean, he's playing some chess. And true to his character, 
true to his desires, true to it seems the way that he was made, what does Esau do? He impulsively says, I don't care about something in the future. I need to eat because I'm about to die. You see it in the passage. He says, Jacob said, sell me your birthright. In verse 32, Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, this is crazy. It's like, again, who needs $2 million at some point down the road? I need to eat something now. Now, here's the deal. We don't know that Jacob was physically about to die. I think that if it came down to me getting $2 million versus $1 million, I would eat grass. And yet, the point is that he doesn't value this special aspect of his relationship to his father. He only cares about the moment. And it's his choice. God didn't force him to give up his birthright. He gave up his birthright. And Jacob turns it on and makes sure that he can't wiggle out of it because he'll say in verse 33, swear to me now, you can't get out of this, swear to me now. So he swore to him, and what does it say? And sold his birthright to Jacob. What's the narrator's analysis of this? And this is a big deal, friends, because when we read uh, the Old Testament text, a lot of times, these guys will get away with murder. And the text won't say anything bad about them. Right? I mean, you saw some horrible stuff happening in the life of Abraham, and the narrator never, like, decries it as something wrong. But notice what happens here. For one of the first times in the whole narrative, he speaks up and speaks of Like how foolish and dumb this was. Verse 34, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He honored his word. And it says Esau, notice the staccato version of these verbs. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Very little comment. It's It's done. He got what he wanted. He goes on. But the narrator has a word for us. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Esau was only acting in the moment. He was only doing what he really wanted to do. But the way that the passage characterizes it is that he despised it. You see this same verb in the book of Psalms talking about looking at something as if it were a worm. He saw it it as something just absolutely invaluable. He had been given this special privilege or he could have enjoyed the special privilege of a unique relationship with his father that would have blessed him financially in the long run, and he was like, nah, I don't care about that. It's not a big deal. It's like a worm on the sidewalk. I can go without it. I'll just step over that. I want what I want now. These are human decisions, people. Jacob's doing what he wants. Esau's doing what he wants. And so how does God's decree progress? It progresses along the tracks of human decisions. How does His story unfold? By means of the decisions of man. The decree of God? The decisions of man. If that's confusing for you, join the club. I don't know how it all fits together. There are certain things about God that I know are bigger than what I can figure it out. You ever try to figure out the Trinity? How can God be three persons and yet one God? You ever try to figure out the hypostatic union, that truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man? 
You ever try to figure out the divine human authorship of Scripture? I mean, the fact that like Paul wrote the book of Romans and yet God wrote the book of Romans makes your head hurt, doesn't it? You ever try to figure out the decrees of God and the decisions of man? Makes your head hurt. And yet both are true. R.C. Sproul said it this way. It's a great little picture of our conundrum. He says, the, the decrees of God and the decisions of man are like parallel lines that meet somewhere in eternity. You say, parallel lines don't meet, but we don't know what eternity's like. It's something that is beyond our grasp. And yet, the, the children of Israel needed to know that this was the way that God's plans unfolded. He determined things, and they would decide things. And therefore, in the end, they would have to trust Him. What's happening here, and don't miss it, friends, is that Jacob does what he wants. He does what he wants. He acts according to his nature. Nobody violates his will, and guess what he gets? Exactly what he wanted, long-term blessing. And Esau, guess what? He does what he wants. He, he is not forced out of this kicking and screaming. He, he gets exactly what he wanted, and that was a bowl of red soup. He got it in that very moment. What does this have to do with us? I want you to remember that some of you have gotten what you want insofar as you actually desire Christ, you desire eternal life for some reason, like you've looked at things temporal and thought that's not worth it, and you've seen eternity and it seems valuable to you, and, and how did you come to that? Well, it was just it was a decision of your will, like you saw that as valuable, and guess what? God wired you that way somehow. We praise Him for the fact that we could actually value that which He esteems to be valuable. Some desire Christ, and guess what? Some despise Him. You could even despise Him here today. You could hear all this talk about gospel and living your life for Jesus and a life of eternal influence with God and, and actually impacting His kingdom and advancing it and think, that sounds ridiculous. I'd rather have cash now. That sounds ridiculous. I'd rather have influence now. Did God force you into that? No, you chose that. That's how history works. Yeah, God makes decrees, but you're making decisions. And you have decided to live for this world instead of eternity. You have decided to live for yourself instead of the sovereign God. You do what you want. And friends, if that is you, if you're here today and you have no desire for Christ, it is proof that you are indeed dead in your trespasses and sins. Walking under the prince of the power of the air without hope of God in this world. That is Ephesians 2. And guess what? If you desire Christ, you know what it says of you? What the rest of Ephesians 2 says, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us. He intervened, and some of us, He actually gave this desire and this delight in Him, and we've trusted in His Word. And that's what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is about. Salvation by grace through faith, apart from works, like you know that. But remember that little phrase in there? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
It is all from Him. The whole package deal is from Him. Romans 9 is still true. You did not get in because of your own human conniving. Ultimately, God was behind it, enabling you to receive Him and to value Him. We are saved because we delight in the death the death and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We rely on it. We see it as valuable, as precious. And so if this is true for you today, friends, here is just a major point of application. If you understand that you didn't save yourself, but God in His sovereign decree has brought you to the point of deciding to choose Him, you should praise Him. You should praise Him. That is what this passage is about. You look to it and you realize you're not playing the chess match. He's played it for you and you should be happy in the fact that you've been chosen in Christ. You know, one of the ways that we do this is through our words. Did you notice that we've already done it today? We've been singing about God's sovereign grace already in our service this morning and we do it regularly here. Just listen again to some of the words that we have already sang. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord in heaven adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. God is King, you're mortal, and guess what? He's playing the game. Or, or, or we did this one. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Like, how did that happen? That's what the hymn is saying. Died He for me who caused His pain? Amazing love, how can it be that that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Or the third verse of that. Listen to this. Uh, the Wesley brothers had it right. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound or chained in nature's night, but thine eye diffused a quickening ray, a life-giving ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. How did you rise, go forward, and follow Jesus? Because his eye diffused that life-giving ray, enabling you to see him as glorious and worth following. He gets the credit. We give him praise. There's an old hymn that you can't even find it in a hymn book anymore. Maybe one day we'll learn but listen, to this. this is the way that Christians have sung for centuries. But here are these words. The title of the hymn is, My Lord, I Did Not Choose You. And the next line goes, For that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. Unless your grace had called me and taught my opening mind, the world would have enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. You remember that passage? Friends, we not only praise Him with our words. If you know that God's sovereign grace is a reality in your life, it is not just something that you praise Him for with your words. It is something that you also praise Him for with your walk. In the way that you live, you should live in a way that gratefully acknowledges the sovereign rule of God in your life. I'll give you one expression of that that I think would be especially helpful for many of the members of this congregation. Uh, one habit, uh, action item, uh, one reflection or expression of trusting in God's sovereign grace. You ready for it? Sleep. Sleep. 
Sleep is an expression of trust in the sovereignty of God. When we know that He is at work, there are times where we do what we can do and we rest. Psalm 127 says it this way. Hear the word of the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. Did you know that before Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, the average amount of time that people slept was 11 hours. We've gone for six to 10,000 years of history of people actually sleeping 11 hours a time. The people that we see in this book, on average, sleeping 11 hours at a time. And now, all of a sudden, in the last 100 years, we figured out that we can do a little more because we can stay up a little later and we can get up a little earlier. Look, friends, there are times to work through the night. I'm glad that some people work in the ER at midnight, aren't you? There are times where we need to be in a panic and a rush. I I would think of a loved one having a heart attack. I would think of a wife who's going into labor. I would think of a house on fire. But that's not going on in our day-to-day life. There comes some time where we work our little backsides off and then rest and trust that God will do His work. And friends, I am preaching to myself. Having prepared this message this week, there's been twice that I've gone to bed after midnight. So I'm not like trying to just kick you while you're down. I know that this is a hard thing for us. And yet, this is the way of Jesus. You want another passage to meditate on? I would encourage you to look at Matthew chapter 11. You could do this in your small group. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 25 to 30. I was just sharing this with the elders the other day, and it, was, it blows me away that in Jesus, in one of the most hardest points in His ministry, a lot of people have rejected Him. Like it actually says in this particular passage, it's noting the time that, of what's going on. Jesus acknowledges the sovereignty of God. You're going to see it strong. And then He's going to say, this is the famous passage, Come to Me, all you who are burdened and weary." and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is light. If it is the standard of your life to not experience the light and easy yoke of Jesus, I would only ask you whose yoke you're wearing. The yoke of self-ambition? The yoke of uh, appeasing appearances? and Trying to live up to the society around you? Those who know that God is sovereign can rest in His love. And at the same time, friends, I could go to the other end of this, and I won't do it, but the other end is if we know that God is sovereign and is in control, guess what? We're going to do what He tells us to do. Like, He still gives means. You want to see somebody saved? You don't just sleep, you pray. You want to see somebody saved? You don't just sleep, you preach. You proclaim the gospel. There are still means by which God works, and I'm not not acknowledging those. But what I am trying to acknowledge is our penchant to play our own chess game. Like the refusal that we regularly experience to acknowledge that God is at work and we have to trust Him for some things. This is what the nation of Israel would need. They would need to know time and time again that they're going to get in such situations that they would not be able to strategize a way out. See, you need to know something. American stories 
American, like you go back to the American Revolution. I was just reminded of this this weekend. You read stories about uh, George Washington and, and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, and you see stories of resolve, and you see what it means to be an American. Somebody who worked hard and made it happen, even though things were falling apart around them. That's a good American story. You want to know a good Christian story? You want to know a good Judeo-Christian heritage? It's stories like this, where people like Abraham had to trust God. And people like Jacob had to trust God. And people like Moses, when they had no other options, had to trust God. That's their hero stories. That's the way God's people were. They trust Him for His sovereign grace. And so we worship Him, not only with our words, but with our walk, and in a life of humble dependence upon Him. So if this is true of you, you praise Him. But if it is not true of you, if you are not delighting in Him, if you do not see what He offers you as something that transcends what you value in the day-to-day, my clear call to you from the text of Scripture is this, you need to trust Him. You. I'm talking about the human decision part of things now. You must trust Him. You must trust in Him. The text says it this way, if you're weary, you come to Him for rest. If you're hungry, you find Him to be the bread of eternal life. If you are guilty, you see Him as the one who pardons from sin. You want to know what's mind-blowing? You read Romans chapter 9. I dare you, read all of Romans 9 again. And you get reminded of God's sovereign choice and decree, and guess what? You get to Romans chapter 10 in the same context, and you're going to hear these words from the Apostle Paul. That if you should confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That is on you, friends. And you must at some point trust Him. That's your only recourse. You say, how do I know if I'm one of these chosen ones? I hear this all the time. Look, I grew up, by the way, in a denomination that to actually pass my ordination exam, I had to refute everything I was saying this morning. I didn't grow up this way. But this is what the text of Scripture says. And here's the deal. When I used to wonder, man, like, how do we know who's saved? Here's the answer. Are you trusting in Jesus? That's who's chosen. That's how we know who believes. One of my favorite stories of my life, I hope I never forget it till the day I die, is one of the last conversations I had with my grandfather before he passed away. He grew up in the same denomination I did that largely rejected this idea of God's sovereign election. And so he knew that I had gone off to seminary and he thought that, you know, I had this highfalutin education and he wanted to know what about all this election stuff meant because somebody told him that his grandson was a heretic and that he shouldn't be preaching this stuff. Anyway, so my granddad rightfully confronted me over it. He cared for me. He said, "Uh, Justin, what is all this election stuff you're learning? And man, it was just a great conversation, because there we are. We're we're sitting on the bank of a river. I mean, like the whole family is out there playing. The sun's going down. It's just like a perfect conversation setting. And so I just explained to him like how you would know, humanly speaking, who's been chosen. And so I just asked him a few questions. He's someone who trusts in Christ. And I said, "Uh, Granddaddy, how did you come to know Jesus? And he said, well, I heard the preacher when I was a young kid. I said, how did you, um, like, know, like, how how did you choose that church? He said, well, my parents took me. I said, how did your parents get to that place? He said, well, their parents actually lived in that area. 
Um, I said, was it a particular message? He said, oh yeah, there was this and this. I said, and so what happened in that? He said, well, I, I heard it. I said, well, what made you decide to go there that day? He said, I just wanted to be there that day. I mean, we just kept asking more and more questions, just acknowledging that, yeah, there was just some, some human like stuff going on, but ultimately, how do we know that he was one who was chosen? Because he had confessed with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in his heart that God had raised him from the dead. There's something, you cannot pierce the veil of eternity, but we can know in this moment what it looks like to be the chosen, and that is the one who trusts in Christ. And so I would have none of you walk out of here today and say, well, that's not me. It can be you. If you would just trust Him. And I say this with all the sincerity within me, and don't take it wrong, but the way Jesus would pronounce this is this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If this sounds like absolute hogwash to you, you have no desire whatsoever to receive this eternal life. God's not going to force you. You've made your decision, and it would appear as if God has made his. But if you desire even the smallest bit, this righteousness that can be provided by Christ alone, you need to rely on him now. Let's pray. Father, you've taught us today how your story unfolds. We praise you for your sovereign decree. We could not choose you if you had not chosen us. Lord, you gave us certain wiring, certain dispositions, certain inclinations. You placed us in the right places at the right times. You we're convinced our hearts to be open and receptive to the message. And Lord, in that, we are praising you, acknowledging that we have not saved ourselves. But at the same time, we recognize that, Lord, along the, that, that line of your decree also flows our decisions. And we have responsibilities. And Lord, for some in this room, that responsibility is yet to be to trust in Jesus Christ alone from, for their salvation, to turn from their sin, to place their faith in you. And I pray that you would enable them to make that decision today. Open their eyes to the beauty of your sovereign grace provided in Christ Jesus. And for those of us who know that to be true, I pray that we would go out from this place in our work, in our worship, in our witness with that confidence or that you are doing something, Lord, you are playing the board in the right way to accomplish that which will honor and glorify you in the end. So, Father, help us to trust you all the more. We trust you in this time of giving. We trust you in our time of closing response. And, Lord, even as the service concludes in a few moments with Lord, affirming another elder, Lord, we'll trust you in the leadership of the church. Or work in our hearts this week as we continue to trust your sovereign plan. In Jesus' name, I pray and ask it. Amen.